Amen. Please turn with me in the Smaller Forms and Prayers book, the Form of Baptism of Infants, page 9, right in the beginning of the Forms and Prayers book, page 9. And we read this. Faithful word about baptism as we come to the baptism. Dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, what the Lord has revealed to us in his word about holy baptism can be summarized in this way. First, baptism teaches that we and our children are conceived and born in sin. This means that we are by nature children of wrath and for that reason cannot be members of Christ's kingdom unless we are born again. Baptism, whether by immersion or sprinkling, teaches that sin has made us so impure that we must undergo a cleansing which only God can accomplish. By this we are admonished to detest ourselves, humble ourselves before God, and turn to him for our cleansing and salvation. Second, baptism signifies and seals to us the washing away of our sins through Jesus Christ. For this reason, we are baptized into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. When we are baptized in the name of the Father, God the Father testifies and seals to us that he makes an eternal covenant of grace with us and adopts us as his children and heirs. Therefore, he promises to provide us with everlasting good and protect us from all evil or turn it to our profit. When we are baptized into the name of the Son, God the Son seals to us that he washes us in his blood from all our sins. Christ unites us to himself so that we share in his death and resurrection. Through this union with Christ, we are freed from our sins and accounted righteous before God. When we are baptized into the name of the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit assures us by this holy sacrament that he will make his home within us and will sanctify us as members of Christ. He will impart to us what we have in Christ, namely the washing away of our sins and the daily renewing of our lives. As a result of his work within us, we shall finally be presented within, without the stain of sin among the assembly of the elect in life eternal. Third, the covenant of grace contains both promises and obligations. Having considered the promises, we now consider the obligations. Through baptism, God calls us and places us under obligation to live in new obedience to him. This means that we must cling to this one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We must trust in him and love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We must renounce the sinful way of life. We must put to death our old nature and show by our lives that we belong to God. If we, through weakness, should fall into sin, we must not despair of God's mercy nor use our weakness as an excuse to keep sinning. Baptism is a seal and totally reliable witness that we have an eternal covenant with God. Our children should not be excluded from baptism because of their inability to understand its meaning. Just as, without their knowledge, they share in Adam's condemnation, 
so are they, without their knowledge, received to grace in Christ. God's gracious attitude towards us and our children is revealed in what he says to Abraham, the father of all believers. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. The Apostle Peter also testifies this with these words. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Therefore, God formally commanded that children be circumcised as a seal of the covenant and of the righteousness that comes by faith. Christ also recognized that children are members of the covenant people when he embraced them, laid his hands on them, and blessed them. Since baptism has replaced circumcision as the sign and seal of the covenant, Colossians 2, our children should be baptized as heirs of God's kingdom and of his covenant. As children grow up, their parents are responsible for teaching them the meaning of baptism in order that we may now administer this holy sacrament of God to his glory for our comfort and to the edification of the church. Let us call upon his holy name. Let us at this time pray. Almighty, eternal God, long ago you severely punished an unbelieving and unrepentant world in holy judgment by sending a flood. But in your great mercy, you saved and protected believing Noah and his family. You also drowned the obstinate Pharaoh and his whole army in the Red Sea. And you brought your people Israel through the sea on dry ground. In these acts, you revealed the meaning of baptism and the mercies of your covenant in saving your people who of themselves deserved your condemnation. We therefore pray that in your infinite mercy you will graciously look upon this, your child, and bring Adeline K. Pausma into union with your son, Jesus Christ, through your Holy Spirit, May she be buried with Christ into death and be raised with him to walk in newness of life. We pray that Adeline may follow Christ day by day, may joyfully bear her cross, and may cling to Christ in true faith, firm hope, and ardent love. Comfort her in your grace so that when she leaves this life and its constant struggle against the power of sin, she may appear before the judgment seat of Christ, your Son, without fear. We ask this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, who with the Father and the Holy Spirit, the one and only God, lives and reigns forever. Amen. Beloved in Christ Jesus, as you have now heard, baptism is given to us by God to seal his covenant to us and our children. We must therefore use the sacrament for that purpose that God intended and not out of superstition or mere custom, that it may be clear that you are doing what God commands. I'm now going to ask Clay and Bree to stand and hear these three questions answering at the end. Do you acknowledge that our children who are conceived and born in sin and are subject to the misery that sin brings, even the condemnation of God, 
are sanctified in Christ and so as members of his church ought to be baptized. Do you acknowledge that the teaching of the Old and New Testaments summarized in the Apostles' Creed and taught in this Christian church is the true and complete doctrine of salvation? And do you sincerely promise to do all that you can to teach this child, Adeline Pausma, and to have her taught this doctrine of salvation? Adeline K. Pausma, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And now, a question for the congregation. Do you the people of the Lord promise to receive Adeline Pausma in love, to pray for her, to help care for her instruction in the faith, and to encourage and sustain her in the fellowship of believers. We do, God Let's come to God a prayer of thanksgiving. Almighty God and merciful Father, we thank and praise you that you have forgiven us and our children all our sins through the blood of your dear Son, Jesus Christ. You received us through your Holy Spirit as members of your only begotten Son and so adopted us as your children. You sealed and confirmed this to us by holy baptism. We earnestly pray through your beloved Son, that you will always govern Adeline Pausma by your Holy Spirit. May she be nurtured in the Christian faith and in godliness and grow and develop in the Lord Jesus Christ. Grant that she may see your fatherly goodness and mercy, which you have shown to her and to us all. And may she live in all righteousness under our only teacher, king, and high priest, Jesus Christ. Give her the courage to fight against and to overcome sin, the devil in this whole dominion. And may she forever praise and magnify you and your Son, Jesus Christ, together with the Holy Spirit, the one and only true God. Amen. Amen. And now, brothers and sisters, let us open up our text for this morning. Psalm 93. Uh, for those who are uh, visiting with us, we're doing a mini-series through the Psalms. We're, we're picking one Psalm from each of the five books of the Psalms. So now we come to book four of the Psalms and to Psalm 93. It's a Psalm from book four of the Psalms which we have chosen. Psalm 93, that's page 632 in the Bibles under the seats. 
right near the middle of your Bibles, Psalm 93. Let us hear these words from God's Word. The Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed. He has put on strength as His belt. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. Your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. The floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their roaring. Mightier than the thunders of many waters, mightier than the waves of the sea, the Lord on high is mighty. Your decrees are very trustworthy. Holiness befits your house, O Lord, forevermore. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our Lord endures forever. Dear brothers and sisters in Christ, when reading through the Old Testament, and as we read first and second Samuel, first and second Kings, first and second Chronicles, we are reminded again and again in the record of God's holy recorded history that we need something different. For time and time again, we read of unrighteous kings who are chosen to rule the specially chosen people of God, and they do so in unrighteousness. And even the few righteous kings who do trust in the Lord and love the law of God are far from perfect, and their own sins and struggles are also recorded for us. From generation to generation, as God's word works through the history from, from one generation, from one king to the next, we are taught that we need something different. We need a different king. Now that answer is given to us in a number of places in the scriptures, but one of the places we clearly have the answer to that struggle to that pain, to that need for something different, for a need for a different answer, one of the places we clearly get that answer is in Psalms 93 to 100. Psalms united together around the theme that the Lord reigns. And that is how the first psalm of this series of psalms begins. The Lord, Yahweh, reigns. And our theme this morning then is this, that Yahweh is the righteous king. We all need. He is the one true and eternal king. He is the king that we need from one generation to the next. And so we're going to look at the majestic king, uh, verse 1, and then the eternal king, verse 2, the powerful king for the third and fourth verse, and then uh, in verse 5, we'll look at the just king. Well, one of the first things that we notice about a person is the clothes that they are wearing. He is wearing a sweater. She is wearing a dress. He is wearing something red. She is wearing something blue. And so it's, it's one of the first things we notice about a person. And so the psalmist uses the picture of clothing to speak about what we should notice, what we should see about the Lord. And he doesn't just use any clothing. He uses royal clothing. He is robed. And what should we notice? What should we see about God? He is robed in majesty. And he also has a belt of strength. We'll look more at that in our third point. 
But for now, we're going to focus on that robe of majesty, and we're going to dig in a little bit to the the Hebrew word here, which is an unusual word, or a a word that's used in not a typical way. It's the word uh, gayut, and the root form of this Hebrew word appears fairly often, but not too often, a little less than 100 times in the Old Testament. And the unusual thing about this word is that it's one of those words in human language which has a literal meaning, but it is almost always used in a figurative way. You have words like this in English or phrases like this in English as well. So if I talked about a gray area, the first thought that pops into your head is probably not a gray room full of gray furniture. You're probably thinking about something that's difficult to define. Well, here is a Hebrew word that is like that. It has a literal meaning. It means lofty or raised up one or or something like that, loftiness. But it's only translated that way maybe 5% of the time in the Old Testament. Almost always it is used and therefore translated in a figurative way. Sometimes it's translated exalted, sometimes glorious. Here the ESV translates it majestic. He is robed in majesty. I said this word is almost always used in a figurative sense. If we look at the different times that this word is used, sometimes it's applied to people figuratively and sometimes it's applied to God figuratively. And when it's applied to God, we know that God is good. And so it's always something positive. He's the exalted one. He's the glorious one. He's the majestic one. When it is applied to man, the context shows again and again, with only a couple of exceptions when when we're talking about God making the nation of Israel glorious. But time and time again in the Old Testament, this word is used to describe the pride of man. It's a word that means lofty. It's almost always used in a figurative way. When we speak about God, we talk about God's lofty majesty and glory. When it's applied to man, it's a word that speaks of man's lofty pride. Now, brothers and sisters, this is something that, remember the the Psalms, they, they stand on their own, they stand individually, but they're intentionally ordered. And remember that this is not a very common word. But here we have the same Hebrew word or the same Hebrew root in different forms in back-to-back psalms because this is the word used in 94 verse 2 when we read pride. So look at Psalm 94 verse 2. It begins with the regular Hebrew word, the common vanilla Hebrew word for rise up. And it says, rise up, O judge of the earth, and repay the proud what they deserve. People of God, the word of God tells us again and again and again, God is the high one. We must not make ourselves high. Pride is a symbol of of sin. Pride is related to so many sins. And here is one of the many ways scripture teaches us this. Even the root of the Hebrew word as, as, as the Hebrew hearers and readers would go from the short Psalm 93 to the first two verses of Psalm 94 They are reading, God is high, God is glorious, God is majestic. And if you call yourself lofty, then may God rise up over you. 
and show you who you really are. Who are we? We are those who must be humbled, those who must see that we are sinners. We must be, Lord willing, we'll look at the middle Beatitudes tonight. What's the first Beatitude as Jesus begins the Sermon on the Mount? We must be poor in spirit. We must be humbled before God who is alone, truly lofty, and worthy of claiming the exalted position. He is majestic. We are not. We are called to repent of our sins and trust in the only glorious one. He is the majestic one that we need. And he is the eternal king. This is our second point. And we're looking at really the end of verse 1 into verse 2 because the end of verse 1 is speaking about the fact that the world is established and it's it ties immediately to verse 2. Why is the world established? Why is it that the world will not be moved? It's because God has established it and God's throne is unmovable. Why does a, a, a corn planted season yield a corn harvest? Why does a deer give birth to a deer? Why is, why is the world orderly? Why does the world continue on in an orderly way? Well, in the world, the common answer to that today is something like this. You see, we've grown greatly in our knowledge and our understanding of how things work. And so because we know how things work and we have an understanding of, of things on a massive scale like galaxies and things on a tiny scale like bacteria in a way that we never had before, because we know how it works, nature itself is its own stability. Look, this is how it happens. What is that? It is nothing other than idolatry. It is another way of taking man and exalting man's knowledge, which we can gain because God's world is orderly, and he made it so that we could investigate that orderliness. We take man's own research, man's own discoveries, and we elevate that and we make that the idol. But the reason why it's orderly is not because we know how it works. It's not because of nature itself. It's because God established it and God continues to sustain it because his throne is unmovable and it is always his creation. It's no longer very good as it was made, Genesis 1.31. It groans like a woman in childbirth, Romans chapter 8, but it is still God's creation. And that is why it has order. God is the unmovable one. I mean, think about how much your world would shake if the sun did not rise tomorrow. Think about, think about how much your world would shake if a corn harvest was all kinds of little bugs instead of, of corn. And there, was, there was nothing there. It's just, what, what, what would happen if this world was not orderly? We would be thrown into chaos. We, we have some level of comfort in the orderliness of this world. Why is that so? It's because God established it. God continues to rule it, even it is, as it is now groaning and no longer the very good and perfectly harmonious order that it was first made. God is the eternal king. 
This is still his uh, creation. And then uh, we, we need this eternal king. So you think about the historical narrative and, and the record of one king after another who's unrighteous, who's, who doesn't fulfill what we need. Please turn back just a page or two with me to Psalm 89. This is the last psalm of book three of the psalms. And so as, as, as the books of the psalms always end with a word of praise, so the last verse of Psalm 89 is a word of praise. Blessed be the Lord forever. Amen and amen. But there is a tension in Psalm 89 more so than with the concluding psalms at the end of, of the other books. And the tension is, is this. The psalmist is continually reminding God, bringing before God in prayer, the promise to David, the promise that David's throne would be established. Look, for example, at verses 35 and 36. Once for all I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure forever, his throne as long as the sun before me. But this throne is not the throne of creator God as it is as it is being worked out in history from David to son to son to son for, for centuries ruling in Jerusalem. No, these are human kings. These are imperfect kings. And then they're even conquered kings. So Psalm 89 is, is one of the Psalms uh, written later. And we see in verses 44 to 49 this, this tension. You have made splendor, verse 44, to cease, and you have cast his throne to the ground. You have cut short the days of his youth. You've covered him with shame. And this brings this question, this tension. How long, O Lord? When will this end? Verse 49, where is your steadfast love of old, which, you sh- which by your faithfulness you swore to David? There's this tension as the people of God look at the promises of God, including the particular promises to David of his throne being established and they say but the throne has been conquered it's been thrown down in shame where is the answer where is our stability in this unstable world well when we look beyond human kings and we look to the creator king who holds this very world together by his continued sustaining power there we see the throne that is established of old and here brothers and sisters is one of the times when the promises are clearly given to God's people. I mean, just let's just pick out some of the clear references to God's reign and rule from Psalms 93 to 100. Look at uh, 95 verse 3. For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. Or uh, 96 verse 10. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Or 97 verse 1, the Lord reigns. Or uh, 98 verse 6, the the last half of that verse, make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. And then once again in Psalm 99 verse 1, the Lord reigns. And so the people in the Old Testament were comforted again and again by the truth that you need to look beyond the human kings. You need to look to the Lord who reigns. But when is this question really answered in a way that that we can grab hold of that the Old Testament saints could not grab hold of? This question is finally answered when we see the one who is both the flesh of David 
and the very Son of God. And there we see how the throne of David can continue forever. Because Jesus Christ is born of Mary, is from David in the flesh, but he's also God. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever, Hebrews 13, verse 8. There is the king that we can trust who holds this very world together, who cannot be moved, even as so many things will be unstable in our lives, he is the eternal, unmovable king that we can trust. And that leads directly into the third point. God, and the eternal Son of God, Jesus Christ, is, is the eternal and mighty king. Now sometimes uh, when we see reference to, to waves, even in the Psalms, such as Psalm 104, it, it becomes clear that we're being reminded of the waves of the flood, that's probably not how the floods are being used here. Look, look how it's a, it's, a, it's a picture of rebellion against God. The floods have lifted up. They lift up their voice, and they lift up their voice against God. Verse 3, but God is mightier than the voices of rebellion which come against him. That's the, that's the movement. And of course, the, the waves of the of the flood were not in rebellion against God. They were God's agent against rebellion. And so the psalmist is directing us to think not of, of literal floods and of literal waves so much as to think about figurative uh, waves and floods and, and voices that seem powerful. Water is so powerful. can move many, many, a, a small local flood can move many, many tons of rock without any trouble. They think there are things which seem powerful and they, they rise up in rebellion against God, but God is mightier than the thunders of many waters. So as the psalmist is using this figuratively, let's, let's turn to Isaiah to see two ways that, that waves are commonly used. Isaiah chapter 17 will begin there. This forward about 100 pages to the right. Isaiah chapter 17 and we're going to look at two texts in Isaiah to look at, at two ways that, that waves are commonly used to picture rebellion against God or to picture, or to picture uh, unsteadiness and to picture chaos which God must control and exert his might over and which we trust in God to do so. The first picture is the chaos of the nations the chaos of the power of, of the voice of the nations, which seems so powerful. Isaiah chapter 17, verses 12 and 13. Ah, the thunder of many peoples. Isaiah 17, verse 12. They thunder like the thundering of the sea. Ah, the roar of nations. They roar like the roaring of mighty waters. The nations roar like the roaring of many waters, but he will rebuke them, and they will flee far away, chased like chaff on the mountains before the wind, and the whirling dust before the storm. Oh, the voice of the world seems so powerful, whether it's the armies of Assyria of old, whether it's the voice of 
those who are exploring nature and saying, look, we see how nature works, and so that's, that's what it actually is. Nature itself is what is working. It's the roaring of many waters. It sounds so powerful. We don't need a creator. We know how it works. We don't need to think that a God created lightning. We know where lightning comes from. And it comes like the crashing waves of many powerful seeming voices. And God says, no, I'm the creator. And I still every voice of rebellion. No rebellion will stand against me. I am mightier than that which appears to be the might of man. I am truly lofty. They can only claim loftiness in the pride of sin. Now here's another way that the waves are used as as pictures of what must be stilled by God. Turn forward to Isaiah chapter 54. Isaiah chapter 54. I'm going to read verses 11 to 14. Here, the storm-tossed waves are not the voices of the world coming against God. It's the the storm-tossed chaos within our own souls, our own hearts apart from God. Isaiah chapter 54, beginning at verse 11. O afflicted one, storm-tossed and not comforted, Behold, I will set your stones in antimony and lay your foundations with sapphires. I will make your pinnacles of agate and your gates of carbuncles and all your wall of precious stones. All your children shall be taught by the Lord and great shall be the peace of your children. In righteousness you shall be established. You shall be far from oppression for you shall not fear and from terror for it shall shall not come near you. We are storm-tossed because of the sins of our own nature, the sins of our own soul. We need righteousness. But there is comfort because our very sins are paid for in Christ. Notice where this promise in Isaiah comes. It comes after Isaiah 53. It's part of the servant songs of Isaiah. We have peace because, Isaiah 53 verse 5, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds we are healed. We are like sheep that have gone astray, and that is not a safe position to be in. We are storm-tossed within our own souls, but the power of God is mightier than our own sin, and the blood of Christ sets us free from our own tyranny, from our own slavery to our own sins. Surely Jesus Christ is the King we need He can stand and he can calm the actual waves in the Sea of Galilee and say, be still. He can stand against the voices of rebellion in the world and say, woe unto you. And he can stand and look at a sinner and say, 
your sins are forgiven. Revelation 17, verse 14. They will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them, for He is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those with Him are called and chosen and faithful. He is the King we need. By His faithfulness, we can be called His faithful ones. And brothers and sisters, He is the just King. This is our last point. Even the best kings of Israel, their house was a mess. Oh, what a, what a mess is the house of David. All the half-siblings, strife and murder and other sins against one another continuing which David saw in his own lifetime which he saw after his which which continued after his death but the house of this king the house of God is holy holy and trustworthy is he and holiness befits his House. Holiness befits your house. That's the middle line. The word befit is, is one of those words that's difficult to translate. It, it includes the idea of being adorned in beauty. Do you, so do you translate one Hebrew word with four or five words? How do you, how do, you do this? It, it could be holiness is lovely in your house. That would be an appropriate translation. In other words, God's house is beautiful and it's the holiness of God which shows that beauty. There is so much, there is so much ugliness in this world. Even the, the righteous kings are surrounded by ugliness and ugly themselves. We need the beautiful palace. We need the one whose house is trustworthy, is beautiful. We need God's house. His holiness, His trust worthy word that that word for befits translated befits in the middle of verse 5 it's the same word used when the poor shepherd man describes his beloved the Shulamite woman to whom he's uh, engaged Song of Songs 1 the dreamy description of their marriage uh, comes in chapter 3 you're lovely you're lovely God's house is lovely, is beautiful. He is the king we need, and his house is beautiful. It's not because of any outward form of beauty. Isaiah 53, verse 2. It's because of the beauty of his holiness, and with his holiness he suffered for sinners. Isaiah 53, verse 4. To 12. And so this is Christ whom we look to. This is Christ, our beautiful King. And, and with that, brothers and sisters, uh, Psalms 93 to 100, they're all emphasizing uh, different aspects of God's kingship. We might say Psalm 93 is the introduction, covering a number of different, a number of different aspects. Some of them, like Psalm 94, emphasize that God is the righteous judge, the perfect judging king. Others, like Psalm 96, emphasize that he's the king who is worthy of worship. And then what's the last psalm in this line of psalms? It's Psalm 100. And there's 
this is a psalm where we don't see directly the word king. We don't see directly the word reign. But we see that God is the shepherd of his people. And shepherd is, is a kingly picture in the Old Testament. It's often an image of kingship. And so at the end of this series that emphasizes, this series of psalms that emphasizes that the Lord reigns, the Lord is king. We have at the end of that, Psalm 100 and 100 verse 3, Know that the Lord, He is God, it is He who made us, and we are His, we are His people, and the sheep of His pasture. His care, His loving care is beautiful. Isaiah has been our companion prophet this morning, so let's bring our sermon to a conclusion with one more text from Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 40 verse 10 and 11, where the picture of God as king and his merciful care for his sheep is emphasized in in Psalm 100, and that's the picture in Isaiah 40. And the, the shepherding mercy and love of God for his people is revealed to us with these words in Isaiah 40, verses 10 and 11. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock. There's a movement from how God relates to the whole world and God's special relationship to his people. And that's this what Psalm 93 is. 93 verse 5 emphasizes his, his special relationship to his people. He rules over all and his house And his testimonies, which he gives in a special way to his people, are a special blessing as he brings us to his beautiful loving care. He will tend, Isaiah 40, verse 11, his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. So, brothers and sisters, we can rejoice when we see a covenant home with Christian parents seeking to raise young ones and nurture them in the faith, but no parent, professing believer, of course not an unbeliever, no parent is perfect. And so the greatest thing that can be done in any home is when parents point their children to the loving king we all need, to Jesus Christ and to his beautiful, trustworthy house and rule and reign forever and ever. Amen. Let us pray.